Croftlands has a large quantity of yellow jasmine growing up its walls, and it was thought that this dying message had some reference to them, showing that the poor old man's mind was wandering. Of course, the newspapers, agog for anything out of the common, took up the story hotly, calling it the mystery of the yellow jasmine, though in all probability the words were completely unimportant. "'They are unimportant, you say?' said Poirot. "'Well, doubtless, since you say so, it must be so.' I regarded him dubiously, but I could detect no mockery in his eye. "'And then,' I continued, "'there came the excitements of the inquest. "'This is where you lick your lips, I perceive. "'There was a certain amount of feeling evidenced against Dr. Quentin. "'To begin with, he was not the regular doctor, only a locum, "'putting in a month's work, whilst Dr. Belitho was away on a well-earned holiday. "'Then it was felt that his carelessness was the direct cause of the accident.' But his evidence was little short of sensational. Mr. Painter had been ailing in health since his arrival at Croftlands. Dr. Belitho had attended him for some time. But when Dr. Quentin first saw his patient, he was mystified by some of the symptoms. He had only attended him once before the night when he was sent for after dinner. As soon as he was alone with Mr. Painter, the latter had unfolded a surprising tale. To begin with, he was not feeling ill at all, he explained but the taste of some curry that he had been eating at dinner had struck him as peculiar. Making an excuse to get rid of Ah Ling for a few minutes, he had turned the contents of his plate into a bowl, and he now handed it over to the doctor with injunctions to find out if there were really anything wrong with it. In spite of his statement that he was not feeling ill, the doctor noted that the shock of his suspicions had evidently affected him, and that his heart was feeling it. Accordingly, he administered an injection, not of a narcotic, but of strychnine. That, I think, completes the case, except for the crux of the whole thing. The fact that the uneaten curry, duly analysed, was found to contain enough powdered opium to have killed two men. I paused. And your conclusions, Hastings? asked Poirot quietly. Well, it's difficult to say. It might have been an accident. The fact that someone attempted to poison him the same night might be merely a coincidence. But you don't think so. You prefer to believe murder. Well, don't you, mon ami? You and I do not reason in the same way. I am not trying to make up my mind between two opposite solutions, murder or accident. That will come when we have solved the other problem, the mystery of the yellow jasmine. By the way, you have left out something there. Oh, you mean the two lines at right angles to each other faintly indicated under the words— I did not think they could be of any possible importance. What you think is always so important to yourself, Hastings. But let us pass from the mystery of the yellow jasmine to the mystery of the curry. I know. Who poisoned it? Why? There are a hundred questions one can ask. Ah, Ling, of course, prepared it. But why should he wish to kill his master? Is he a member of a tong or something like that? One reads of such things. The tong of the yellow jasmine, perhaps? Then there is Gerald Painter. I came to an abrupt pause. Yes, said Poirot, nodding his head. There is Gerald Painter, as you say. He is his uncle's heir. He was dining out that night, though. Oh, he might have got at some of the ingredients of the curry, I suggested, and he would take care to be out so as not to have to partake of the dish. I think my reasoning rather impressed Poirot. He looked at me with a more respectful attention than he had given me so far. 
He returns late, I mused, pursuing a hypothetical case, sees the light in his uncle's study, enters, and finding his plan has failed, thrusts the old man down into the fire. Mr. Painter, who was a fairly hearty man of fifty-five, would not permit himself to be burnt to death without a struggle, Hastings. Such a reconstruction is not feasible. Well, Poirot, I cried, we're nearly there, I fancy. Let us hear what you think. Poirot threw me a smile, swelled out his chest, and began in a pompous manner. Assuming murder, the question at once arises, why choose that particular method? I can think of only one reason to confuse identity, the face being charred beyond recognition. What? I cried. You think a moment's patience, Hastings. I was going on to say that I examine that theory. Is there any ground for believing that the body is not that of Mr. Painter? Is there anyone else whose body it possibly could be? I examine these two questions, and finally I answer them both in the negative. Oh, I said, rather disappointed. And then? Poirot's eyes twinkled a little, and then I say to myself, since there is here something that I do not understand, it would be well that I should investigate the matter. I must not permit myself to be wholly engrossed by the big four. Ah, we are just arriving. My little clothes brush, where does it hide itself? Here it is. Brush me down, I pray you, my friend, and then I will perform the same service for you. Yes, said Poirot thoughtfully, as he put away the brush. One must not permit oneself to be obsessed by one idea. I have been in danger of that. Figure to yourself, my friend, that even here, in this case, I am in danger of it. Those two lines you mentioned, a downstroke and a line at right angles to it. What are they but the beginning of a four? Good gracious, Poirot, I cried, laughing. Is it not absurd? I see the hand of the big four everywhere. It is well to employ one's wits in a totally different milieu. Ah, there is Jap come to meet us. Chapter 10 we investigate at Croftlands. The Scotland Yard inspector was indeed waiting on the platform, and greeted us warmly. Well, Monsieur Poirot, this is good. Thought you'd like to be led in on this. Tip-top mystery, isn't it? I read this aright as showing Jap to be completely puzzled, and hoping to pick up a pointer from Poirot. Jap had a car waiting, and we drove up in it to Croftlands. It was a square, white house, quite unpretentious, and covered with creepers, including the starry yellow jasmine. Jab looked up at it as we did. "'Must have been balmy to go writing that, poor old cove,' he remarked. "'Hallucinations, perhaps, and thought he was outside.' Poirot was smiling at him. "'Which was it, my good Jap?' he asked. "'Accident or murder?' The inspector seemed a little embarrassed by the question. "'Well, if it weren't for that curry business, I'd be for accident every time.' There's no sense in holding a live man's head in the fire. Why, he'd scream the house down. Ah, said Poirot in a low voice. Fool that I have been. Triple imbecile. You are a cleverer man than I am, Jap. Jap was rather taken aback by the compliment, Poirot being usually given to exclusive self-praise. He reddened and muttered something about there being a lot of doubt about that. He led the way through the house to the room where the tragedy had occurred, Mr. Painter's study. It was a wide, low room, with book-lined walls and big leather armchairs. Poirot looked across at once to the window, which gave upon a graveled terrace. The window. Was it unlatched? he asked. Well, that's the whole point, of course. 
When the doctor left this room, he merely closed the door behind him. The next morning it was found locked. Who locked it? Mr. Painter? Ah Ling declares that the window is closed and bolted. Dr. Quentin, on the other hand, has the impression that it was closed, but not fastened. But he won't swear either way. If he could, it would make a great difference. If the man was murdered, someone entered the room either through the door or the window. If through the door, it was an inside job. If through the window, it might have been anyone. First thing, when they had broken the door down, they flung the window open, and the housemaid who did it thinks it wasn't fastened, but she's a precious bad witness. We'll remember anything you ask her to. What about the key? Well, there you are again. It was on the floor among the wreckage of the door. Might have fallen from the keyhole, might have been dropped there by one of the people who entered, might have been slipped underneath the door from the outside. In fact, everything is might have been. You've hit it, Monsieur Poirot. That's just what it is. Poirot was looking round him, frowning unhappily. I cannot see light, he murmured. Just now, yes, I got a gleam, but now all is darkness once more. I have not the clue. The motive? Well, young Gerald Painter had a pretty good motive, remarked Jap grimly. He's been wild enough in his time, I can tell you, and extravagant. You know what artists are, too. No morals at all. Poirot did not pay much attention to Jap's sweeping strictures on the artistic temperament. Instead, he smiled knowingly. My good Jap, is it possible that you throw me the mud in my eyes? I know well enough that it is the Chinaman you suspect, but you are so artful. You want me to help you, and yet you drag the Red Kipper across the trail. Jap burst out laughing. <laughs> That's you all over, Monsieur Poirot. Yes, I'd bet on the chink. I'll admit it now. It stands to reason that it was he who doctored the curry. And if he'd try once in an evening to get his master out of the way, he'd try twice. I wonder if he would, said Poirot softly. But it's the motive that beats me. Some heathen revenge or other, I suppose. I wonder, said Poirot again. There has been no robbery? Nothing has disappeared? No jewellery or money or papers? No. That is, uh, not exactly. I pricked up my ears. So did Poirot. Well, there's been no robbery, I mean, explained Jap. But the old boy was writing a book of some sort. We only knew about it this morning, when there was a letter from the publishers asking about the manuscript. It was just completed, it seems. Young Painter and I have searched high and low, but can't find a trace of it. You must have hidden it away somewhere. Poirot's eyes were shining with the green light I knew so well. How was it called, this book? he asked. The Hidden Hand in China, I think it was called. Aha! said Poirot, almost with a gasp. Then he said quickly, Let me see the Chinaman, Ah Ling. The Chinaman was sent for and appeared, shuffling along with his eyes cast down and his pigtail swinging. His impassive face showed no trace of any kind of emotion. Ah Ling, said Poirot, are you sorry your master is dead? I welly sorry. He good master. You know who kill him? I not know. I tell policeman if I know. The questions and answers went on. With the same impassive face, Arling described how he had made the curry. The cook had had nothing to do with it, he declared. No hand had touched it but his own. I wondered if he saw where his admission was leading him. He stuck to it, too, that the window to the garden was bolted that evening. 
If it was open in the morning, his master must have opened it himself. At last Poirot dismissed him. That will do, Ah Ling. Just as the Chinaman had got to the door, Poirot recalled him. And you know nothing, you say, of the yellow jasmine? No. What should I know? Know yet of the sign that was written underneath it? Poirot leaned forward as he spoke and quickly traced something on the dust of a little table. I was near enough to see it before he rubbed it out. A downstroke, a line at right angles, and then a second line down, which completed a big four. The effect on the Chinaman was electrical. For one moment his face was a mask of terror. Then, as suddenly, it was impassive again, and repeating his grave disclaimer, he withdrew. Jap departed in search of young painter, and Poirot and I were left alone together. The big four, Hastings, cried Poirot, once again the big four. Painter was a great traveller. In his book there was doubtless some vital information concerning the doings of number one, Li Chang Yen, the head and brains of the big four. But who? How? Hush, here they come. Gerald Painter was an amiable, rather weak-looking young man. He had a soft brown beard and a peculiar flowing tie. He answered Poirot's questions readily enough. I dined out with some neighbours of ours, the Witcherleys, he explained. What time did I get home? Oh, about eleven. I had a latchkey, you know. All the servants had gone to bed, and I naturally thought my uncle had done the same. As a matter of fact, I did think I caught sight of that soft-footed Chinese beggar, Ah Ling, just whisking round the corner of the hall, but I fancy I was mistaken. When did you last see your uncle, Mr. Painter? I mean, before you came to live with him. Oh, not since I was a kid of ten. He and his brother, my father, quarrelled, you know. But he found you again with very little trouble, did he not, in spite of all the years that had passed? Yes, it was quite a bit of luck my seeing the lawyer's advertisement. Poirot asked no more questions. Our next move was to visit Dr. Quentin. His story was substantially the same as he had told at the inquest, and he had little to add to it. He received us in his surgery, having just come to the end of his consulting patients. He seemed an intelligent man. A certain primness of manner went well with his pince-nez, but I fancied that he would be thoroughly modern in his methods. "'I wish I could remember about the window,' he said frankly. "'But it's dangerous to think back. One becomes quite positive about something that never existed. <laughs> That's psychology, isn't it, Monsieur Poirot? You see, I've read all about your methods, and I may say I'm an enormous admirer of yours. No, I suppose it's pretty certain that the Chinaman put the powdered opium in the curry, but he'll never admit it.' And we shall never know why, but holding a man down in a fire, <laughs> that's not in keeping with our Chinese friend's character, it seems to me. I commented on this last point to Poirot as we walked down the main street of Market Hanford. Do you think he let a confederate in? I asked. By the way, I suppose Jap can be trusted to keep an eye on him. The inspector had passed into the police station on some business or other. The emissaries of the Big Four are pretty spry— "'Jap is keeping an eye on both of them,' said Poirot grimly. "'They have been closely shadowed ever since the body was discovered. "'Well, at any rate we know that Gerald Painter had nothing to do with it. "'You always know so much more than I do, Hastings, that it becomes quite fatiguing. "'You old fox!' I laughed. "'You never will commit yourself. "'To be honest, Hastings, the case is now quite clear to me. "'All but the words, Yellow Jasmine.' And I am coming to agree with you that they have no bearing on the crime. 
In a case of this kind, you have got to make up your mind who is lying. I have done that. And yet, he suddenly darted from my side and entered an adjacent bookshop. He emerged a few minutes later, hugging a parcel. Then Japri joined us, and we all sought quarters at the inn. I slept late the next morning. When I descended to the sitting-room, reserved for us, I found Poirot already there, pacing up and down, his face contorted with agony. Do not converse with me, he cried, waving an agitated hand. Not until I know that all is well, that the arrest is made. Ah, but my psychology has been weak. Hastings, if a man writes a dying message, it is because it is important. Everyone has said, Yellow Jasmine. There is yellow jasmine growing up the house. It means nothing. Well, what does it mean? Just what it says. Listen. He held up a little book he was holding. My friend, it struck me that it would be well to inquire into this subject. What exactly is yellow jasmine? This little book has told me. Listen. He read. Gelsemini radix, yellow jasmine, composition, alkaloids, gelseminine. C22H26N203, a potent poison acting like conine. Gelsemine, C12H14NO2, acting like strychnine. Gelsemic acid, etc. Gelsemium is a powerful depressant to the central nervous system. At a late stage, in its action, it paralyzes the motor nerve endings, and in large doses causes giddiness and loss of muscular power. Death is due to paralysis of the respiratory center. You see, Hastings? At the beginning, I had an inkling of the truth when Jap made his remark about a live man being forced into the fire. I realized then that it was a dead man who was burned. But why? What was the point? My friend, if you were to shoot a man or stab a man after he were dead or even knock him on the head, it would be apparent that the injuries were inflicted after death. But with his head charred to a cinder, no one is going to hunt about for obscure causes of death. And the man who has apparently just escaped being poisoned at dinner is not likely to be poisoned just afterwards. Who is lying? That is always the question. I decided to believe Ah Ling. What? I exclaimed. You are surprised, Hastings? Ah Ling knew of the existence of the Big Four. That was evident. So evident that it was clear he knew nothing of their association with the crime until that moment. Had he been the murderer, he would have been able to retain his impassive face perfectly. So, I decided then to believe Ah Ling, and I fixed my suspicions on Gerald Painter. It seemed to me that number four would have found an impersonation of a long-lost nephew very easy. What? I cried. Number four? No, Hastings, not number four. As soon as I had read up the subject of Yellow Jasmine, I saw the truth. In fact, it leapt to the eye. As always, I said coldly, it doesn't leap to mine. Because you will not use your little grey cells. Who had a chance to tamper with the curry? Ah Ling. No one else. No one else? What about the doctor? But that was afterwards. Of course it was afterwards. There was no trace of powdered opium in the curry served to Mr. Painter. But acting in obedience to the suspicions, Dr. Quentin had aroused, the old man eats none of it, and preserves it to give to his medical attendant whom he summons according to plan. Dr. Quentin arrives, takes charge of the curry, and gives Mr. Painter an injection. Of strychnine, he says, but really of yellow jasmine, a poisonous dose. When the drug begins to take effect, he departs, after unlatching the window. Then, in the night, 
He returns by the window, finds the manuscript, and shoves Mr. Painter into the fire. He does not heed the newspaper that drops to the floor and is covered by the old man's body. Painter knew what drug he had been given, and strove to accuse the big four of his murder. It is easy for Quentin to mix powdered opium with the curry before handing it over to be analyzed. He gives his version of the conversation with the old man, and mentions the strychnine injection casually, in case the mark of the hypodermic needle is noticed. Suspicion at once is divided between accident and the guilt of Ah Ling, owing to the poison of the curry. But Dr. Quentin cannot be number four. I fancy he can. There is undoubtedly a real Dr. Quentin who is probably abroad somewhere. Number four has simply masqueraded as him for a short time. The arrangements with Dr. Bolitho were all carried out by correspondence, the man who was to do locum originally having been taken ill at the last minute. At that moment, Jap burst in, very red in the face. "'Have you got him?' cried Poirot anxiously. Jap shook his head, very out of breath. "'Bolitho came back from his holiday this morning, recalled by telegram. No one knows who sent it. The other man left last night. We'll catch him yet, though.' Poirot shook his head quietly. "'I think not,' he said. And absent-mindedly, he drew a big four on the table with a fork. Chapter 11 A Chess Problem Poirot and I often dined at a small restaurant in Soho. We were there one evening, when we observed a friend at an adjacent table. It was Inspector Jap, and as there was room at our table, he came and joined us. It was some time since either of us had seen him. "'Never do you drop in to see us nowadays,' declared Poirot reproachfully. "'Not since the affair of the yellow jasmine have we met, and that is nearly a month ago.' Oh, I've been up north, that's why. How are things with you? Big four still going strong, eh? Poirot shook a finger at him reproachfully. Ah, you mock yourself at me. But the big four, they exist. Oh, I don't doubt that. But they're not the hub of the universe, as you make out. My friend, you are very much mistaken. The greatest power for evil in the world today is this big four. To what end they are tending, no one knows— but there has never been another such criminal organization, the finest brain in China at the head of it, an American millionaire, and a French woman scientist as members, and for the fourth— Jap interrupted. I know, I know. Regular bee in your bonnet over it all. It's becoming your little mania, Monsieur Poirot. Let's talk of something else for a change. Take any interest in chess? I have played it, yes. Did you see that curious business yesterday? Match between two players of worldwide reputation, and one died during the game. I saw a mention of it. Dr. Savaranov, uh, the Russian champion, was one of the players, and the other who succumbed to heart failure was the brilliant young American Gilmore Wilson. Quite right. Savaranov beat Rubenstein and became Russian champion some years ago. Wilson was said to be a second Capablanca. A very curious occurrence, mused Poirot. If I mistake not, you have a particular interest in the matter. Jap gave a rather embarrassed laugh. <laughs> You've hit it, Monsieur Poirot. I'm puzzled. Wilson was sound as a bell. No trace of heart trouble. His death is quite inexplicable. You suspect Dr. Zavaranov of putting him out of the way, I cried. "'Hardly that,' said Jap dryly. 
I don't think even a Russian would murder another man in order not to be beaten at chess. And anyway, from all I could make out, the boot was likely to be on the other leg. The doctor is supposed to be very hot stuff. Second Alaska, they say, is. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. Then what exactly is your little idea? he asked. Why should Wilson be poisoned? For I assume, of course, that it is poison you suspect. Or naturally. Heart failure means your heart stops beating. That's all there is to it. That's what a doctor says officially at the moment, but privately he tips us the wink that he's not satisfied. When is the autopsy to take place? Tonight. Wilson's death was extraordinarily sudden. He seemed quite as usual, and was actually moving one of the pieces when he suddenly fell forward, dead. There are very few poisons would act in such a fashion, objected Poirot. I know. The autopsy will help us, I expect. But why should anyone want Gilmore Wilson out of the way? That's what I'd like to know. Armless, unassuming young fellow? Just come over here from the States, and apparently hadn't an enemy in the world. It seems incredible, I mused. Not at all, said Poirot, smiling. Jap has his theory. I can see. I have, Monsieur Poirot. I don't believe the poison was meant for Wilson. It was meant for the other man. Savaranov? Yes. Savaranov fell foul of the Bolsheviks at the outbreak of the revolution. He was even reported killed. In reality, he escaped, and for three years endured incredible hardships in the wilds of Siberia. His sufferings were so great that he is now a changed man. His friends and acquaintances declare they would hardly have recognized him. His hair is white, and his whole aspect that of a man terribly aged. He is a semi-invalid, and seldom goes out, living alone with a niece, Sonia Davilov, and a Russian manservant in a flat down Westminster way. It's possible that he still considers himself a marked man. Certainly he was very unwilling to agree to this chess contest. He refused several times point-blank, so it was only when the newspapers took it up and began making a fuss about the unsportsmanlike refusal that he gave in. Gilmore Wilson had gone on challenging him with real Yankee pertinacity, and in the end he got his way. Now I ask you, Monsieur Poirot, why wasn't he willing? Because he didn't want attention drawn to him? Didn't want someone or other getting on his track? That's my solution. Gilmore Wilson got pipped by mistake. There is no one who has any private reason to gain by Savaranov's death. Well, his niece, I suppose. He's recently come into an immense fortune, left him by Madame Gospoja, whose husband was a sugar profiteer under the old regime. They had an affair together once, I believe, and she refused steadfastly to credit the reports of his death. Where did the match take place? In Savaranov's own flat. He's an invalid, as I told you. Many people there to watch it? Well, at least a dozen, probably more. Poirot made an expressive grimace. My poor chap, your task is not an easy one. Once I know definitely that Wilson was poisoned, I can get on. Has it occurred to you that, in the meantime, supposing your assumption that Savaranov was the intended victim to be correct, the murderer may try again? Well, of course it has. Two men are watching Severinov's flat. That will be very useful if anyone should call with a bomb under his arm, said Poirot dryly. You're getting interested, Monsieur Poirot, said Jap with a twinkle. 
Care to come round to the mortuary and see Wilson's body before the doctors start on it? Who knows? His type-in may be askew, and that may give you a valuable clue that will solve the mystery. My dear chap, all through dinner my fingers have been itching to rearrange your own type-in. You permit, yes? Ah, that is much more pleasing to the eye. Yes, by all means, let us go to the mortuary. I could see that Poirot's attention was completely captivated by this new problem. It was so long since he had shown any interest over any outside case that I was quite rejoiced to see him back on his old form. For my part, I felt a deep pity as I looked down upon the motionless form and convulsed face of the hapless young American who had come by his death in such a strange way. Poirot examined the body attentively. There was no mark on it anywhere except a small scar on the left hand. "'And the doctor says that's a burn, not a cut,' explained Jap. Poirot's attention shifted to the contents of the dead man's pockets, which a constable spread out for our inspection. There was nothing much—a handkerchief, keys, note-case filled with notes, and some unimportant letters. But one object, standing by itself, filled Poirot with interest. "'A chessman!' he exclaimed. "'A white bishop!' Was that in his pocket? No, clasped in his hand. We had quite a difficulty to get it out of his fingers. It must be returned to Dr. Zavaranov sometime. It's part of a very beautiful set of carved ivory chessmen. Permit me to return it to him. It will make an excuse for my going there. Aha! cried Jap. So you want to come in on this case? I admit it. So skillfully have you aroused my interest. Well, that's fine. Got you away from your brooding. Captain Hastings is pleased, too, I can see. Quite right, I said, laughing. Poirot turned back towards the body. No other little detail you can tell me about him? he asked. Well, I don't think so. Not even uh, that he was left-handed? You're a wizard, Monsieur Poirot. How did you know that? He was left-handed. Not that it's anything to do with the case. Oh, nothing whatever, agreed Poirot hastily seeing the Jap was slightly ruffled. My little joke, that was all. I like to play you the trick, see you. We went out upon an amicable understanding. The following morning saw us wending our way to Dr. Savaranov's flat in Westminster. Sonia Davilov, I mused. It's a pretty name. Poirot stopped and threw me a look of despair. Always looking for romance. You are incorrigible. It would serve you right if Sonia Davilov turned out to be our friend and enemy, the Countess Vera Rosikov. At the mention of the Countess, my face clouded over. Surely, Poirot, you don't suspect— But no, 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 it was a joke. I have not the big four on the brain to that extent, whatever Jap may say. The door of the flat was opened to us by a manservant with a peculiarly wooden face. It seemed impossible to believe that that impassive countenance could ever display emotion. Poirot presented a card on which Jap had scribbled a few words of introduction, and we were shown into a low, long room, furnished with rich hangings and curios. One or two wonderful icons hung upon the walls, and exquisite Persian rugs lay upon the floor. A samovar stood upon a table. I was examining one of the icons, which I judged to be of considerable value, and turned to see Poirot prone on the floor. Beautiful as the rug was, it hardly seemed to me to necessitate such close attention. "'Is it such a very wonderful specimen?' I asked. "'Huh? 
Oh, the rug. But no, it was not the rug I was remarking. But it is a beautiful specimen. Far too beautiful to have a large nail wantonly driven through the middle of it. No, Hastings, as I came forward. The nail is not there now, but the hole remains. A sudden sound behind us made me spin round, and Poirot sprang nimbly to his feet. A girl was standing in the doorway. Her eyes, full upon his, were dark with suspicion. She was of medium height, with a beautiful, rather sullen face, dark blue eyes, and very black hair, which was cut short. Her voice, when she spoke, was rich and sonorous, and completely un-English. "'I fear my uncle will be unable to see you. He is a great invalid.' Oh, that is a pity. But perhaps you will kindly help me instead. You are Mademoiselle Davilov, are you not? Yes, I am Sonia Davilov. What is it you want to know? I am making some inquiries about that sad affair the night before last, the death of a Monsieur Gilmore Wilson. What can you tell me about it? The girl's eyes opened wide. He died of heart failure. As he was playing chess. The police are not so sure that it was a heart failure, mademoiselle. The girl gave a terrified gesture. It was true, then, she cried. Ivan was right. Who is Ivan, and why do you say he was right? It was Ivan who opened the door to you, and he has already said to me that in his opinion Gilmore Wilson did not die a natural death, that he was poisoned. By mistake. By mistake? Yes, the poison was meant for my uncle. She had quite forgotten her first distrust now, and was speaking eagerly. Why do you say that, mademoiselle? Who should wish to poison Dr. Savaranov? She shook her head. I do not know. I am in the dark. And my uncle, he will not trust me. It is natural, perhaps. You see, he hardly knows me. He saw me as a child, and not since till I came to live with him here in London. But this much I do know. He is in fear of something. We have many secret societies in Russia, and one day I overheard something which made me think it was of just such a society he went in fear. Tell me, monsieur. She came a step nearer and dropped her voice. Have you ever heard of a society called the Big Four? Poirot jumped nearly out of his skin, his eyes positively bulged with astonishment. Why do you—what uh, do you know of the big four, mademoiselle? There is such an association, then. I overheard a reference to them, and asked my uncle about it afterwards. Never have I seen a man so afraid. He turned all white and shaking. He was in fear of them, monsieur. In great fear, I am sure of it, and by mistake— they killed the American. Wilson. The Big Four, murmured Poirot. Always the Big Four. An astonishing coincidence, mademoiselle. Your uncle is still in danger. I must save him. Now, recount to me exactly the events of that fatal evening. Show me the chessboard, the table, how the two men sat, everything. Chapter 7 The Radium Thieves on the night of his release, Halliday slept in the room next to ours at the hotel, and all night long I heard him moaning and protesting in his sleep. Undoubtedly, his experience in the villa had broken his nerve. 
and in the morning we failed completely to extract any information from him. He would only repeat his statement about the unlimited power at the disposal of the Big Four, and his assurance of the vengeance which would follow if he talked. After lunch he departed to rejoin his wife in England, but Poirot and I remained behind in Paris. I was all for energetic proceedings of some kind or other, and Poirot's quiescence annoyed me. For heaven's sake, Poirot, I urged, let's be up and at them. Admirable, mon ami, admirable. Up where, and at whom? Be precise, I beg of you. Well, at the big four, of course. Ça va sans dire. But how would you set about it? The police, I hazarded doubtfully. Poirot smiled. They would accuse us of romancing. We have nothing to go upon, nothing whatever. We must wait. Wait for what? Wait for them to make a move. See now, in England you all comprehend and adore la box. If one man does not make a move, the other must, and by permitting the adversary to make the attack, one learns something about him. That is our part, to let the other side make the attack. Well, you think they will? I said doubtfully. I have no doubt of it whatever. To begin with, see, they try to get me out of England. That fails. Then, in the Dartmoor affair, we step in and save their victim from the gallows. And yesterday, once again, we interfere with their plans. Assuredly, they will not leave the matter there. As I reflected on this, there was a knock on the door. Without waiting for a reply, a man stepped into the room and closed the door behind him. He was a tall, thin man with a slightly hooked nose and a sallow complexion. He wore an overcoat buttoned up to his chin, and a soft hat pulled down over his eyes. "'Excuse me, gentlemen, for my somewhat unceremonious entry,' he said in a soft voice, "'but my business is of a rather unorthodox nature.' Smiling, he advanced to the table and sat down by it. I was about to spring up, but Poirot restrained me with a gesture. "'As you say, monsieur, your entry is somewhat unceremonious. Will you kindly state your business?' "'My dear Monsieur Poirot, it is very simple. You have been annoying my friends.' "'In what way?' "'Come, come, Monsieur Poirot. You do not seriously ask me that. You know as well as I do. It depends, Monsieur, upon who these friends of yours are.' Without a word, the man drew from his pocket a cigarette-case and opened it, took out four cigarettes, and tossed them on the table. Then he picked them up and returned them to his case, which he replaced in his pocket. "'Aha,' said Poirot. "'So it is like that, is it? And what do your friends suggest?' "'They suggest, monsieur, that you should employ your talents, your very considerable talents, in the detection of legitimate crime. Return to your former avocations, and solve the problems of London society ladies. A peaceful program, said Poirot. And supposing I do not agree? The man made an eloquent gesture. We should regret it, of course, exceedingly, he said. So would all the friends and admirers of the great Monsieur Hercule Poirot. But regrets, however poignant, do not bring a man to life again. Put very delicately, said Poirot, nodding his head, and supposing uh, I accept. In that case, I am empowered to offer you compensation. He drew out a pocketbook and threw ten notes on the table. They were for ten thousand francs each. 
That is merely a guarantee of our good faith, he said. Ten times that amount will be paid to you. Good God, I cried, springing up. You dare to think? Sit down, Hastings, said Poirot autocratically. Subdue your so beautiful and honest nature and sit down. To you, monsieur, I will say this. What is to prevent me ringing up the police and giving you into their custody, whilst my friend here prevents you from escaping? By all means, do so, if you think it is advisable, said our visitor calmly. Oh, look here, Poirot, I cried. I can't stand this. Ring up the police and have done with it. Rising swiftly, I strode to the door and stood with my back against it. It seems the obvious cause, murmured Poirot, as though debating with himself. But you distrust the obvious, eh? said our visitor, smiling. Go on, Poirot, I urged. It will be your responsibility, mon ami. As he lifted the receiver, the man made a sudden cat-like jump at me. I was ready for him. In another minute we were locked together, staggering round the room. Suddenly I felt him slip and falter. I pressed my advantage. He went down before me, and then, in the very flush of victory, an extraordinary thing happened. I felt myself flying forwards, head first. I crashed into the wall in a complicated heap. I was up in a minute, but the door was already closing behind my late adversary. I rushed to it and shook it. It was locked on the outside. I seized the telephone from Poirot. Is that the Bureau? Stop a man who's coming out, a tall man with a buttoned-up overcoat and a soft hat. He's wanted by the police. Very few minutes elapsed before we heard a noise in the corridor outside. The key was turned, the door flung open. The manager himself stood in the doorway. The man, you've got him? I cried. No, monsieur. No one has descended. Well, you must have passed him. We have passed no one, monsieur. It is incredible that he can have escaped. You have passed someone, I think? said Poirot in his gentle voice. One of the hotel staff, perhaps? Only a waiter carrying a tray, monsieur. Ah, said Poirot, in a tone that spoke infinities. So that was why he wore his overcoat buttoned up to his chin, mused Poirot, when we had finally got rid of the excited hotel officials. I'm awfully sorry, Poirot, I murmured, rather crestfallen. I thought I'd downed him all right. Yes, that was a Japanese trick, I fancy. Do not distress yourself, mon ami. All went according to plan. His plan. That is what I wanted. What's this? I cried, pouncing on a brown object that lay on the floor. It was a slim pocketbook of brown leather, and had evidently fallen from our visitor's pocket during his struggle with me. It contained two receipted bills in the name of Monsieur Felix Laun, and a folded-up piece of paper which made my heart beat faster. It was a half-sheet of notepaper on which a few words were scrawled in pencil— but they were words of supreme importance. The next meeting of the Council will be on Friday at 34 Rue des Echelles at 11 a.m. It was signed with a big figure four. And today was Friday, and the clock on the mantelpiece showed the hour to be 10.30. My God, what a chance! I cried. Fate is playing into our hands. We must start at once, though. What stupendous luck! So that was why he came, murmured Poirot. I see it all now. See what? Come on, Poirot, don't stand daydreaming there. Poirot looked at me and slowly shook his head, smiling as he did so. Will you walk into my parlour, said the spider to the fly. That is your little English nursery rhyme, is it not? No, no, they are subtle, but not so subtle as Hercule Poirot. What on earth are you driving at, Poirot? My friend, I have been asking myself the reason of this morning's visit. 
Did our visitor really hope to succeed in bribing me, or alternatively in frightening me into abandoning my task? It seemed hardly credible. Why then did he come? And now I see the whole plan, very neat, very pretty. The ostensible reason to bribe or frighten me, the necessary struggle which he took no pains to avoid, and which should make the dropped pocketbook natural and reasonable. And finally, the pitfall. Rue des Echelles, 11 a.m. I think not, mon ami. One does not catch Hercule Poirot as easily as that. Good heavens, I gasped. Poirot was frowning to himself. There is still one thing I do not understand. What is that? The time, Hastings, the time. If they wanted to decoy me away, surely night-time would be better. Why this early hour? Is it possible that something is about to happen this morning? Something which they are anxious Hercule Poirot should not know about? He shook his head. We shall see. Here I sit, mon ami. We do not stir out this morning. We await events here. It was at half-past eleven exactly that the summons came. A petit bleu. Poirot tore it open, then handed it to me. It was from Madame Olivier, the world-famous scientist, whom we had visited yesterday in connection with the Halliday case. It asked us to come out to Passy at once. We obeyed the summons without an instant's delay. Madame Olivier received us in the same small salon. I was struck anew with the wonderful power of this woman, with her long nun's face and burning eyes, this brilliant successor of Becquerel and the Curies. She came to the point at once. Monsieur, you interviewed me yesterday about the disappearance of Monsieur Halliday. I now learn that you returned to the house a second time and asked to see my secretary, Inez Verona. She left the house with you and has not returned here since. Is that all, madame? Uh, no, monsieur, it is not. Last night the laboratory was broken into, and several valuable papers and memoranda were stolen. The thieves had a try for something more precious still, but luckily they failed to open the big safe. Madame, these are the facts of the case. Your late secretary, Madame Veronot, was really the Countess Rossakov, an expert thief, and it was she who was responsible for the disappearance of Monsieur Halliday. How long had she been with you? Five months, monsieur. What you say amazes me. It is true, nevertheless. These papers, were they easy to find, or do you think an inside knowledge was shown? It is rather curious that the thieves knew exactly where to look. You think Inez... Yes, I have no doubt that it was upon her information that they acted. But what is this precious thing that the thieves failed to find? Jewels? Madame Olivier shook her head with a faint smile. Something much more precious than that, monsieur. She looked round her, then bent forward, lowering her voice. Radium, monsieur. Radium? Yes, monsieur. I am now at the crux of my experiments. I possess a small portion of radium myself. More has been lent to me for the process I am at work upon. Small though the actual quantity is, it comprises a large amount of the world's stock and represents a value of millions of francs. And where is it? In its leaden case, in the big safe. The safe purposely appears to be of an old and worn-out pattern, but it is really a triumph of the safe-maker's art. That is probably why the thieves were unable to open it. 
How long are you keeping this radium in your possession? Only for two days more, monsieur. Then my experiments will be concluded. Poirot's eyes brightened. And Inez Verono is aware of the fact? Good. Then our friends will come back. Not a word of me to anyone, madame, but rest assured, I will save your radium for you. You have a key of the door leading from the laboratory to the garden? Yes, monsieur. Here it is. I have a duplicate for myself, and here is the key of the garden door leading out into the alleyway between this villa and the next one. I thank you, madame. Tonight, go to bed as usual. Have no fears, and leave all to me. But not a word to anyone, not to your two assistants, Mademoiselle Claude and Monsieur Henri, is it not? Particularly not a word to them. Poirot left the villa, rubbing his hands in great satisfaction. What are we going to do now? I asked. Now, Hastings, we are about to leave Paris, for England. What? We will pack our effects, have lunch, and drive to the Gare du Nord. But the radium? I said we were going to leave for England. I did not say we were going to arrive there. Reflect a moment, Hastings. It is quite certain that we are being watched and followed. Our enemies must believe that we are going back to England, and they certainly will not believe that unless they see us get on board the train and start. Do you mean we're going to slip off again at the last minute? No, Hastings. Our enemies will be satisfied with nothing less than a bona fide departure. But the train doesn't stop until Calais. It will stop if it is paid to do so. Oh, come on now, Poirot. Surely you can't pay an express to stop. They'd refuse. My dear friend, have you never remarked the little handle, the signal d'arrêt, penalty for improper use, one hundred francs, I think. Oh, you're going to pull that. Or rather, a friend of mine, Pierre Combeau, will do so. Then, while he is arguing with the guard and making a big scene, and all the train is agog with interest, you and I will fade quietly away. We duly carried out Poirot's plan. Pierre Combeau, an old crony of Poirot's, and who evidently knew my little friend's methods pretty well, fell in with the arrangements. The communication cord was pulled just as we got to the outskirts of Paris. Combeau made a scene in the most approved French fashion, and Poirot and I were able to leave the train without anyone being interested in our departure. Our first proceeding was to make a considerable change in our appearance. Poirot had brought the materials for this with him in a small case— Two loafers in dirty blue blouses were the result. We had dinner in an obscure hostelry and started back to Paris afterwards. It was close on eleven o'clock when we found ourselves once more in the neighbourhood of Madame Olivier's villa. We looked up and down the road before slipping into the alleyway. The whole place appeared to be perfectly deserted. One thing we could be quite certain of. No one was following us. "'I do not expect them to be here yet,' whispered Poirot to me. Possibly they may not come until tomorrow night, but they know perfectly well that there are only two nights on which the radium will be there. Very cautiously we turned the key in the garden door. It opened noiselessly, and we stepped into the garden. And then, with complete unexpectedness, the blow fell. In a minute we were surrounded, gagged and bound. At least ten men must have been waiting for us. Resistance was useless. Like two helpless bundles, we were lifted up and carried along. To my intense astonishment, they took us towards the house, and not away from it. With a key, they opened the door into the laboratory and carried us into it. 
One of the men stooped down before a big safe. The door of it swung open. I felt an unpleasant sensation down my spine. Were they going to bundle us into it and leave us there to asphyxiate slowly? However, to my amazement, I saw that from the inside of the safe steps led down beneath the floor. We were thrust down this narrow way and eventually came out into a big subterranean chamber. A woman stood there, tall and imposing, with a black velvet mask covering her face. She was clearly in command of the situation by her gestures of authority. The men slung us down on the floor and left us, alone with the mysterious creature in the mask. I had no doubt who she was. This was the unknown Frenchwoman, number three of the Big Four. She knelt down beside us and removed the gags, but left us bound, then rising and facing us with a sudden swift gesture, she removed her mask. It was Madame Olivier. Monsieur Poirot, she said, in a low, mocking tone, the great, the wonderful, the unique Monsieur Poirot. I sent a warning to you yesterday morning. You chose to disregard it. You thought you could pit your wits against us, and now you are here. There was a cold malignity about her that froze me to the marrow. It was so at variance with the burning fire of her eyes. She was mad, mad with the madness of genius. Poirot said nothing. His jaw had dropped, and he was staring at her. Well, she said softly, this is the end. We cannot permit our plans to be interfered with. Have you any last request to make? Never before or since have I felt so near death. Poirot was magnificent. He neither flinched nor paled, just stared at her with unabated interest. Your psychology interests me enormously, madame, he said quietly. It is a pity that I have so short a time to devote to studying it. Yes, I have a request to make. A condemned man is always allowed a last smoke, I believe. I have my cigarette case on me, if you would permit. He looked down at his bonds. Oh, yes, she laughed. You would like me to untie your hands, would you not? You are clever, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. I know that. I shall not untie your hands. But I will find you a cigarette. She knelt down by him, extracted his cigarette case, took out a cigarette, and placed it between his lips. And now a match, she said, rising. It is not necessary, madame. Something in his voice startled me. She, too, was arrested. Do not move, I pray of you, madame. You will regret it if you do. Are you acquainted at all with the properties of curare? The South American Indians use it as an arrow poison. A scratch with it means death. Some tribes use a little blowpipe. I, too, have a little blowpipe, constructed so as to look exactly like a cigarette. I have only to blow. Ah, you start. Do not move, madame. The mechanism of this cigarette is most ingenious. One blows, and a tiny dart resembling a fishbone flies through the air to find its mark. You do not wish to die, madame. Therefore I beg of you to release my friend Hastings from his bonds. I cannot use my hands, but I can turn my head so you are still covered, madame. Make no mistake. I beg of you. Slowly, with shaking hands and rage and hate convulsing her face, she bent down and did his bidding. 
I was free. Poirot's voice gave me instructions. Your bonds will now do for the lady, Hastings. That is right. Is she securely fastened? Then release me, I pray of you. It is a fortunate circumstance she sent away her henchmen. With a little luck, we may hope to find the way out unobstructed. In another minute, Poirot stood by my side. He bowed to the lady. Hercule Poirot is not killed so easily, madame. I wish you good night. The gag prevented her from replying, but the murderous gleam in her eyes frightened me. I hoped devoutly that we should never fall into her power again. Three minutes later, we were outside the villa and hurriedly traversing the garden. The road outside was deserted, and we were soon clear of the neighbourhood. Then Poirot broke out. I deserve all that that woman said to me. I am a triple imbecile, a miserable animal, thirty-six times an idiot. I was proud of myself for not falling into their trap, and it was not even meant as a trap, except exactly in the way in which I fell into it. They knew I would see through it. They counted on my seeing through it. This explains all. The ease with which they surrendered. Alliday, everything. Madame Olivier was the ruling spirit. Vera Rosikoff, only her lieutenant. Madame needs Alliday's ideas. She herself had the necessary genius to supply the gaps that perplexed him. Yes, Hastings. We know now who number three is. The woman who is probably the greatest scientist in the world. Think of it. The brain of the East, the science of the West. And two others, whose identities we do not yet know. But we must find out. Tomorrow we will return to London and set about it. You're not going to denounce Madame Olivier to the police? I should not be believed. The woman is one of the idols of France, and we can prove nothing. We are lucky if she does not denounce us. What? Think of it. We are found at night, upon the premises with keys in our possession, that she will swear she never gave us. She surprises us at the safe, and we gag and bind her and make her way. Have no illusions, Hastings. The boot is not upon the right leg. Is that how you say it? Chapter 8 In the House of the Enemy After our adventure in the villa at Passy, we returned post-haste to London. Several letters were awaiting Poirot. He read one of them with a curious smile, and then handed it to me. Read this, mon ami. I turned first to the signature, Abe Ryland, and recalled Poirot's words, The richest man in the world. Mr. Ryland's letter was curt and incisive. He expressed himself as profoundly dissatisfied with the reason Poirot had given for withdrawing from the South American proposition at the last moment. This gives one furiously to think, does it not? said Poirot. I suppose it's only natural he should be a bit ratty. No, no, you comprehend not. Remember the words of Meerling, the man who took refuge here only to die by the hands of his enemies. Number two is represented by an S with two lines through it, the sign of a dollar also by two stripes and a star. It may be conjectured, therefore, that he is an American subject, and that he represents the power of wealth. Add to those words the fact that Ryland offered me a huge sum to tempt me out of England, and— And what about it, Hastings? You mean, I said, staring, that you suspect Abe Ryland, the multimillionaire, of being number two of the big four? Your bright intellect has grasped the idea, Hastings. Yes, I do. The tone in which you said multimillionaire was eloquent, but let me impress upon you one fact. This thing is being run by men at the top, 
and Mr. Ryland has the reputation of being no beauty in his business dealings. An able, unscrupulous man, a man who has all the wealth that he needs and is out for unlimited power. There was undoubtedly something to be said for Poirot's view. I asked him when he had made up his mind definitely upon the point. Well, this is just it. I am not sure. I cannot be sure, mon ami. I would give anything to know. Let me but place number two definitely as Abe Ryland, and we draw nearer to our goal. He has just arrived in London, I see by this, I said, tapping the letter. Shall you call upon him and make your apologies in person? I might do so. Two days later, Poirot returned to our rooms in a state of boundless excitement. He grasped me by both hands in his most impulsive manner. My friend, an occasion stupendous, unprecedented, never to be repeated, has presented itself. But there is danger, grave danger. I should not even ask you to attempt it. If Poirot was trying to frighten me, he was going the wrong way to work, and so I told him. Becoming less incoherent, he unfolded his plan. It seemed that Ryland was looking for an English secretary, one with a good social manner and presence. It was Poirot's suggestion that I should apply for the post. I would do it myself, mon ami, he explained apologetically, but see you, it is almost impossible for me to disguise myself in the needful manner. I speak the English very well, except when I am excited, but hardly so as to deceive the ear, and even though I were to sacrifice my moustaches, I doubt not but that I should still be recognizable as Hercule Poirot. I doubted it also, and declared myself ready and willing to take up the part and penetrate into Ryland's household. Ten to one he won't engage me anyway. I remarked, Oh, yes, he will. I will arrange for you such testimonials as shall make him lick his lips. The Home Secretary himself shall recommend you. This seemed to be carrying things a bit far, but Poirot waved aside my remonstrances. Oh, yes, he will do it. I investigated for him a little matter which might have caused a grave scandal. All was solved with discretion and delicacy. And now, as you would say, he perches upon my hand like the little bird, and pecks the crumbs. Our first step was to engage the services of an artist in makeup. He was a little man with a quaint bird-like turn of the head, not unlike Poirot's own. He considered me for some time in silence, and then fell to work. When I looked at myself in the glass, half an hour afterwards, I was amazed. Special shoes caused me to stand at least two inches taller, and the coat I wore was arranged so as to give me a long, lank, weedy look. My eyebrows had been cunningly altered, giving a totally different expression to my face. I wore pads in my cheeks, and the deep tan of my face was a thing of the past. My moustache had gone, and a gold tooth was prominent on one side of my mouth. "'Your name,' said Poirot, "'is Arthur Neville. God guard you, my friend, for I fear that you go into perilous places.' It was with a beating heart that I presented myself at the Savoy, at an hour named by Mr. Ryland and asked to see the great man. After being kept waiting a minute or two, I was shown upstairs to his suite. Ryland was sitting at a table. Spread out in front of him was a letter, which I could see out of the tail of my eye was in the Home Secretary's handwriting. It was my first sight of the American millionaire, and in spite of myself, I was impressed. He was tall and lean, with a jutting-out chin and a slightly hooked nose. His eyes glittered cold and grey behind penthouse brows. He had thick, grizzled hair, and a long black cigar, without which I learned later he was never seen, protruded rakishly from the corner of his mouth. "'Sit down,' he grunted. 
I sat. He tapped the letter in front of him. According to this piece here, you're the goods all right. I don't need to look further. Say, uh, are you well up in social matters? I said that I thought I could satisfy him in that respect. I mean to say, if I have a lot of dukes and earls and viscounts and such like down to the country place I've gotten, uh, you'll be able to sort them out all right and put them where they should be around the dining table? Oh, quite easily, I replied, smiling. We exchanged a few more preliminaries, and then I found myself engaged. What Mr. Ryland wanted was a secretary conversant with English society, as he already had an American secretary and a stenographer with him. Two days later, I went down to Hatton Chase, the seat of the Duke of Loamshire, which the American millionaire had rented for a period of six months. My duties gave me no difficulty whatever. At one period of my life, I had been private secretary to a busy member of Parliament, so I was not called upon to assume a role unfamiliar to me. Mr. Ryland usually entertained a large party over the weekend, but the middle of the week was comparatively quiet. I saw very little of Mr. Appleby, the American secretary, but he seemed a pleasant, normal young American, very efficient in his work. Of Miss Martin, the stenographer, I saw rather more. She was a pretty girl of about twenty-three or four, with auburn hair and brown eyes that could look mischievous enough upon occasion, though they were usually cast demurely down. I had an idea that she both disliked and distrusted her employer, though of course she was careful never to hint at anything of the kind, but the time came when I was unexpectedly taken into her confidence. I had, of course, carefully scrutinized all the members of the household. One or two of the servants had been newly engaged, one of the footmen, I think, and some of the housemaids. The butler, the housekeeper, and the chef were the Duke's own staff, who had consented to remain on in the establishment. The housemaids I dismissed as unimportant. I scrutinized James, the second footman, very carefully, but it was clear that he was an underfootman, and an underfootman only. He had indeed been engaged by the butler. A person of whom I was far more suspicious was Deves, Ryland's valet, whom he had brought over from New York with him, an Englishman by birth with an irreproachable manner, yet I harbored vague suspicions about him. I had been at Hatton Chase three weeks, and not an incident of any kind had arisen, which I could lay my finger on in support of our theory. There was no trace of the activities of the Big Four. Mr. Ryland was a man of overpowering force and personality, but I was coming to believe that Poirot had made a mistake when he associated him with that dread organization. I even heard him mention Poirot in a casual way at dinner one night. Wonderful little man, they say, but he's a quitter. How do I know? I put him on a deal, and he turned me down the last minute. I'm not taking any more of your Monsieur Hercule Poirot. It was at moments such as these that I felt my cheek pads most wearisome. And then Miss Martin told me a rather curious story. Ryland had gone to London for the day, taking Appleby with him. Miss Martin and I were strolling together in the garden after tea. I liked the girl very much. She was so unaffected and so natural. I could see that there was something on her mind, and at last out it came. "'Do you know, Major Neville,' she said, "'I'm really thinking of resigning my post here.' I looked somewhat astonished, and she went on hurriedly. "'Oh, I know it's a wonderful job to have got, in a way. I suppose most people would think me a fool to throw it up. But I can't stand abuse, Major Neville. To be sworn at like a trooper is more than I can bear. No gentleman would do such a thing. Has Ryland been swearing at you?' She nodded. "'Of course, he's always rather irritable and short-tempered, and that one expects. It's all in the day's work. But to fly into such an absolute fury over nothing at all! 
he really looked as though he could have murdered me, and as I say, over nothing at all. Tell me about it, I said, keenly interested. As you know, I open all Mr. Ryland's letters. Some I hand on to Mr. Appleby, others I deal with myself, but I do all the preliminary sorting. Now there are certain letters that come written on blue paper, and with a, a tiny four marked in the corner. I beg your pardon, did you speak? I had been unable to repress a stifled exclamation, but I hurriedly shook my head and begged her to continue. Well, as I was saying, these letters come, and there are strict orders that they are never to be opened, but to be handed over to Mr. Ryland intact. And, of course, I always do so. But there was an unusually heavy mail yesterday morning, and I was opening those letters in a terrific hurry. By mistake I opened one of these letters. As soon as I saw what I had done, I took it to Mr. Ryland and explained— to my utter amazement, he flew into the most awful rage. As I tell you, I was quite frightened. What was there in the letter, I wondered, to upset him so? Absolutely nothing. That's just the curious part of it. I had read it before I discovered my mistake. It was quite short. I can still remember it word for word, and there was nothing in it that could possibly upset anyone. You can repeat it, you say? I encouraged her. Yes. She paused for a minute then repeated slowly, whilst I noted down the words unobtrusively, the following. Dear Sir, the essential thing now, I should say, is to see the property. If you insist on the quarry being included, then seventeen thousand seems reasonable. Eleven percent commission, too much, four percent is ample. Yours truly, Arthur Leversham. Miss Martin went on. Evidently about some property Mr. Ryland was thinking of buying. But really— I do feel that a man who can get into a rage over such a trifle is, well, dangerous. What do you think I ought to do, Major Neville? You've got more experience of the world than I have. I soothed the girl down, pointed out to her that Mr. Ryland had probably been suffering from the enemy of his race, dyspepsia. In the end, I sent her away quite comforted. But I was not so easily satisfied myself. When the girl had gone, and I was alone, I took out my notebook and ran over the letter which I jotted down. What did it mean, this apparently innocent-sounding missive? Did it concern some business deal which Ryland was undertaking, and was he anxious that no details about it should leak out until it was carried through? Well, that was a possible explanation, but I remembered the small figure four with which the envelopes were marked, and I felt that at last I was on the track of the thing we were seeking. I puzzled over the letter all that evening, and most of the next day, and then suddenly the solution came to me. It was so simple, too. The figure four was the clue. Read every fourth word in the letter, and an entirely different message appeared. Essential should see you quarry 17-11-4. The solution of the figures was easy. 17 stood for the 17th of October, which was tomorrow. Eleven was the time, and four was the signature, either referring to the mysterious number four himself, or else it was the trademark, so to speak, of the big four. The quarry was also intelligible. There was a big disused quarry on the estate about half a mile from the house, a lonely spot, ideal for a secret meeting. For a moment or two I was tempted to run the show myself. It would be such a feather in my cap for once to have the pleasure of crowing over Poirot but in the end I overcame the temptation. This was a big business. I had no right to play a lone hand, and perhaps jeopardize our chances of success. For the first time we had stolen a march upon our enemies. We must make good this time, 
and, disguise the fact as I might, Poirot had the better brain of the two. I wrote off post-haste to him, laying the facts before him, and explaining how urgent it was that we should overhear what went on at the interview. If he liked to leave it to me, well and good, but I gave him detailed instructions how to reach the quarry from the station, in case he should deem it wise to be present himself. I took the letter down to the village and posted it myself. I had been able to communicate with Poirot throughout my stay, but we agreed that he should not attempt to communicate with me in case my letters should be tampered with. I was in a glow of excitement the following evening. No guests were staying in the house, and I was busy with Mr. Ryland in his study all the evening. I had foreseen that this would be the case, which was why I had no hope of being able to meet Poirot at the station. I was, however, confident that I would be dismissed well before eleven o'clock. Sure enough, just after ten-thirty, Mr. Ryland glanced at the clock and announced that he was through. I took the hint and retired discreetly. I went upstairs, as though going to bed, but slipped quietly down a side staircase and let myself out into the garden, having taken the precaution to don a dark overcoat to hide my white shirt-front. I had gone some way down the garden when I chanced to look over my shoulder. Mr. Ryland was just stepping out from his study window into the garden. He was starting to keep the appointment. I redoubled my pace so as to get a clear start. I arrived at the quarry somewhat out of breath. There seemed no one about, and I crawled into a thick tangle of bushes and awaited developments. Ten minutes later, just on the stroke of eleven, Ryland stalked up, his hat over his eyes and the inevitable cigar in his mouth. He gave a quick look round, and then plunged into the hollows of the quarry below. Presently I heard a low murmur of voices come up to me. Evidently the other man, or men, whoever they were, had arrived first at the rendezvous. I crawled cautiously out of the bushes, and inch by inch, using the utmost precaution against noise, I wormed myself down the steep path. Only a boulder now separated me from the talking men. Secure in the blackness, I peeped round the edge of it, and found myself facing the muzzle of a black, murderous-looking automatic. "'Hands up!' said Mr. Ryland succinctly. "'I've been waiting for you.' He was seated in the shadow of the rock, so that I could not see his face, but the menace in his voice was unpleasant. Then I felt a ring of cold steel on the back of my neck, and Ryland lowered his own automatic. "'That's right, George,' he drawled. "'March him around here.' Raging inwardly, I was conducted to a spot in the shadows where the unseen George, whom I suspected of being the impeccable Deves, gagged and bound me securely. Ryland spoke again in a tone which I had difficulty in recognizing, so cold and menacing was it. This is going to be the end of you two. You've got in the way of the big four once too often. Ever heard of landslides? There was one here about two years ago. There's going to be another tonight. I've fixed that good and square. Say, that friend of yours doesn't keep his dates very punctually. A wave of horror swept over me. Poirot. In another minute he would walk straight into the trap, and I was powerless to warn him. I could only pray that he had elected to leave the matter in my hands, and had remained in London. Surely, if he had been coming, he would have been here by now. With every minute that passed, my hopes rose. Suddenly they were dashed to pieces. I heard footsteps, cautious footsteps but footsteps nevertheless. I writhed in impotent agony. They came down the path, paused, and then Poirot himself appeared, his head a little on one side, peering into the shadows. 
I heard the growl of satisfaction Rylan gave as he raised the big automatic and shouted, Hands up! Steve sprang forward as he did so and took Poirot in the rear. The ambush was complete. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Hercule Poirot, said the American grimly. Poirot's self-possession was marvellous. He did not turn a hair, but I saw his eyes searching in the shadows. My friend, he is here? Yes, you're both in the trap. The trap of the big four. <laughs> he laughed. A trap? queried Poirot. Say, haven't you tumbled to it yet? I comprehend that there is a trap, yes, said Poirot gently. But you are in error, monsieur. It is you who are in it, not I and my friend. What? Ryland raised the big automatic, but I saw his gaze falter. If you fire, you commit murder, watched by ten pairs of eyes, and you will be hanged for it. This place is surrounded, has been for the last hour by Scotland Yard men. It is checkmate, Mr. Abe Ryland. He uttered a curious whistle, and as though by magic the place was alive with men, they seized Ryland and the valet and disarmed them. After speaking a few words to the officer in charge, Poirot took me by the arm and led me away. Once clear of the quarry, he embraced me with vigour. You are alive. You are unhurt. It is magnificent. Often have I blamed myself for letting you go. I'm perfectly all right, I said, disengaging myself. I'm just a bit fogged. You tumbled to their little scheme, did you? But I was waiting for it. For what else did I permit you to go there? Your false name, your disguise, not for a moment was it intended to deceive. What? I cried. You've never told me. As I have frequently told you, Hastings, you have a nature so beautiful and so honest that unless you are yourself deceived, it is impossible for you to deceive others. Good. Then you are spotted from the first, and they do what I had counted on their doing. A mathematical certainty who anyone who uses his gray cells properly use you as a decoy. They set the girl on, by the way, mon ami, as an interesting fact psychologically. Had she got red hair? If you mean Miss Martin, I said coldly, her hair is a, a delicate shade of auburn, but they are épatant, these people. They have even studied your psychology. Oh, yes, my friend, Miss Martin was in the plot, very much so. She repeats the letter to you, together with her tale of Mr. Ryland's wrath. You write it down, you puzzle your brains, the cipher is nicely arranged. Difficult, but not too difficult. You solve it, and you send for me. But what they do not know is that I am waiting for just this very thing to happen. I go post-haste to Jap and arrange things, and so, as you see, all is triumph. I was not particularly pleased with Poirot, and I told him so. We went back to London on a milk train in the early hours of the morning, and a most uncomfortable journey it was. I was just out of my bath and indulging in pleasurable thoughts of breakfast when I heard Jap's voice in the sitting-room. I threw on a bathrobe and hurried in. "'A pretty mare's nest you've got us into this time,' Jap was saying. "'It's too bad of you, Monsieur Poirot. First time I've ever known you to take a toss.' Poirot's face was a study. Jap went on. There we were, taking all this black-hand stuff seriously, and all the time it was the footman. The footman, I gasped. Yes, James, or whatever his name is. Seems he laid him a wager in the servants' hall that he could get taken for the old man by his nibs, that's you, Captain Hastings, and would hand him out a lot of spy stuff about a big four gang. 
"'Impossible!' I cried. "'Don't you believe it? I marched our gentlemen straight to Hatton Chase, and there was the real Ryland in bed and asleep, and the butler and the cook and God knows how many of them swear to the wager. Just a silly hoax, that's all it was. And the valet is with him.' "'So that was why he kept in the shadow,' murmured Poirot. After Jap had gone, we looked at each other. "'We know Hastings,' said Poirot at last. "'Number two of the Big Four is Abe Ryland. The masquerading on the part of the footman was to ensure a way of retreat in case of emergencies. And the footman—' "'Yes,' I breathed. "'Number four,' said Poirot gravely. End of Disc Two Disc Three Chapter Nine The Yellow Jasmine Mystery It was all very well for Poirot to say that we were acquiring information all the time, and gaining an insight into our adversaries' minds. I felt myself that I required some more tangible success than this. Since we had come into contact with the Big Four, they had committed two murders, abducted Halliday, and had been within an ace of killing Poirot and myself whereas so far we had hardly scored a point in the game. Poirot treated my complaints lightly. "'So far, Hastings,' he said, "'they laugh, that is true. But you have a proverb, have you not? He laughs best who laughs at the end. And at the end, mon ami, you shall see. You must remember, too,' he added, "'that we deal with no ordinary criminal mind, but with the second greatest brain in the world.' I forbore to pander to his conceit by asking the obvious question. I knew the answer. At least, I knew what Poirot's answer would be. And instead, I tried without success to elicit some information as to what steps he was taking to track down the enemy. As usual, he had kept me completely in the dark as to his movements. But I gathered that he was in touch with secret service agents in India, China, and Russia, and from his occasional bursts of self-glorification that he was at least progressing in his favourite game of gauging his enemy's mind. He had abandoned his private practice almost entirely, and I know that at this time he refused some remarkably handsome fees. True, he would sometimes investigate cases which intrigued him, but he usually dropped them the moment he was convinced that they had no connection with the activities of the Big Four. This attitude of his was remarkably profitable to our friend Inspector Jab. Undeniably, he gained much kudos for solving several problems in which his success was really due to a half-contemptuous hint from Poirot. In return for such service, Jab supplied full details of any case which he thought might interest the little Belgian, and when he was put in charge of what the newspapers called the Yellow Jasmine Mystery, he wired Poirot, asking him whether he would care to come down and look into the case. It was in response to this wire that about a month after my adventure in Abe Ryland's house, we found ourselves alone in a railway compartment, whirling away from the smoke and dust of London, bound for the little town of Market Hanford, in Worcestershire, the seat of the mystery. Poirot leant back in his corner. "'And what exactly is your opinion of the affair, Hastings?' I did not at once reply to this question. I felt the need of going warily. "'It all seems so complicated,' I said cautiously. "'Does it not?' said Poirot delightedly. "'I suppose our rushing off like this is a pretty clear signal that you consider Mr. Painter's death to be murder, not suicide, or the result of an accident.' "'No, no, you must understand me, Hastings. Granting that Mr. Painter died as a result of a particularly terrible accident, there are still a number of mysterious circumstances to be explained.' "'Well, that was what I meant when I said it was all so complicated.' 
Let us go over all the main facts quietly and methodically. Recount them to me, Hastings, in an orderly and lucid fashion. I started forthwith, endeavouring to be as orderly and lucid as I could. We start, I said, with Mr. Painter, a man of fifty-five, rich, cultured, and somewhat of a globetrotter. For the last twelve years he has been little in England, but suddenly tiring of incessant travelling, he bought a small place in Worcestershire, near Market Hanford, and prepared to settle down. His first action was to write to his only relative, a nephew, Gerald Painter, the son of his youngest brother, and to suggest to him that he should come and make his home at Croftlands, as the place is called, with his uncle. Gerald Painter, who is an impecunious young artist, was glad enough to fall in with the arrangement, and had been living with his uncle for about seven months when the tragedy occurred. "'Your narrative style is masterly,' murmured Poirot. "'I say to myself, it is a book that talks, not my friend Hastings.' Paying no attention to Poirot, I went on, warming to the story. Mr. Painter kept up a fair staff at Croftlands. Six servants, as well as his own Chinese body-servant, Ah Ling. His Chinese servant, Ah Ling, murmured Poirot. On Tuesday last, Mr. Painter complained of feeling unwell after dinner, and one of the servants was dispatched to fetch the doctor. Mr. Painter received the doctor in his study, having refused to go to bed. What passed between them was not then known, but before Dr. Quentin left, he asked to see the housekeeper, and mentioned that he had given Mr. Painter a hypodermic injection, as his heart was in a very weak state, recommended that he should not be disturbed, and then proceeded to ask some rather curious questions about the servants, how long they had been there, from whom they had come, etc. The housekeeper answered these questions as best she could, but was rather puzzled as to their purport. A terrible discovery was made on the following morning. One of the housemaids, on descending, was met by a sickening odour of burned flesh, which seemed to come from her master's study. She tried the door, but it was locked on the inside. With the assistance of Gerald Painter and the Chinaman, that was soon broken in. But a terrible sight greeted them. Mr. Painter had fallen forward into the gas-fire, and his face and head were charred beyond recognition. Of course, at the moment, no suspicion was aroused as to its being anything but a ghastly accident. If blame attached to anyone, it was to Dr. Quentin for giving his patient a narcotic and leaving him in such a dangerous position. And then a rather curious discovery was made. There was a newspaper on the floor, lying where it had slipped from the old man's knees. On turning it over, words were found to be scrawled across it, feebly traced in ink. A writing-table stood close to the chair in which Mr. Painter had been sitting, and the forefinger of the victim's right hand was ink-stained up to the second joint. It was clear that, too weak to hold a pen, Mr. Painter had dipped his finger in the ink-pot and managed to scrawl these two words across the surface of the newspaper he held, but the words themselves seemed utterly fantastic. Yellow jasmine. Just that, and nothing more.